The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everyone tonight. Hopefully most of you were able to have that conversation, um, either in the small groups that Michelle helped with at the end of last week's class or on your own at home, where you just shared or reflected on your own about the deepening of understanding of being able to directly acknowledge the presence of dukkha. And I think I mentioned last week or that maybe the first week that, and this just feels so right on to me, but where the Buddha says that the cause for dukkha, the cause for that uneasiness, whether it's that more subtle, deep uneasiness in our hearts or the more obvious difficulties that we have in life, the cause for suffering is the not understanding of it. And, you know, I, I repeat that because it's a real motivation. Then there's actually something we can do. We can use our life and our actual experience of dukkha, suffering. We can use it to no longer be ignorant of suffering, to really be curious. But this is a very different relationship. See, our normal relationship with suffering is I want to get rid of it. And totally understandable. And especially if we have conditions that have been particularly difficult and uh, even overwhelming, then of course we want freedom from that dukkha. But wanting to be free of suffering actually isn't the cause for the release the freedom from suffering. According to the Buddha, according to those of us who've been doing the practice for a while, or you don't even have to be a Buddhist to be learning about dukkha, right? Because it gets our attention whether you've ever bumped into the Buddhist teachings or not. But for people who have been reflective in their lives, what we find is not wanting to suffer doesn't make it go away. What makes it go away is bringing this balanced, stable, clear, kind attention to the present moments of our life, more and more continuously being present, that changes our understanding. We see something about the experience of dukkha, something about the experience of suffering that we hadn't seen before. And it's that waking up we're waking up more, most importantly, we're waking up to this direct, immediate experience of suffering. And in waking up, seeing what we haven't seen, we find our liberation. We find more and more space, more and more, or I should say, less and less in this reactive and unproductive way of relating to the suffering. And that's true both in this sort of inner inner space of our heart and mind and body, but also in our wider communal circles and the suffering and the injustice and the difficulty in the world around us. There's a lot to learn about how to show up for suffering. But we have to understand, you know, the Buddha didn't start by teaching this um, deeper practice of observing 
dukkha ceasing, observing the cause, I should say, observing craving, the cessation of craving. So that's basically the insight, like when we put language to the insight that the Buddha points to, the Buddhist teachings point to, it's this observing, this intimate observation of craving, ceasing. And we're realizing then in that moment the mind or the heart free of craving. And we can, you know, think about that and we can even imagine that, but we want to directly experience this mind, this heart, free of craving. Because then it dawns on the heart, on the mind, oh, this is a possibility to be in the world, but the mind not caught, not entangled with craving. And it's like a different reality, same reality, just without craving. We know this reality with craving. That's the world we're very familiar with. And uh, this really is moving us now to what, uh, in this, this ancient map of the Four Noble Truths, the Second Noble Truth, which is the truth, the ennobling, liberating truth, that there is a cause. Suffering arises. That's, that's kind of how I like to think of it. It's an insight. Oh, suffering is arising. So we're seeing that dukkha is a natural process. And as a natural process, it arises. And we want to see the nature of that arising. What are the supporting conditions that when they're there, then dukkha arises? And what the, the Buddha's pointing out instruction is, yeah, when there's craving when there's an identification with desire, then the heart gets tight. Then everything gets tight. The mind, body, heart gets tight. But before the Buddha would sort of go into these more powerful and subtle teachings, generally, you know, the, the way it would work is people would, you know, show up, they see this person, the Buddha is respected, and they're basically, you know, what would we say if we ran into somebody who seems to know what they're talking about? You know, if we're honest, we'd say, hey, I want to be happy. Tell me how to be happy, right? And the Buddha wouldn't lead with his teachings on renunciation because for most of us, most of the time, that wouldn't sound very appealing. So he would say, oh, you want to be happy? You want to have a nice life? Well... Learn how to practice generosity. Because practicing stinginess is not the way to be happy in life. So, in all ways, cultivate generosity and see if it isn't true that things start to work better in your life. You just end up being happier. So this is for us to check out, right? And he would also teach similarly about sila, this ethical conduct or this deep and resonant commitment to not harming. Well, you want to be happy? You want your life to work better, your relationships to work better, to feel like you belong, to have just sort of ordinary well-being and success in life? Practice generosity and practice this deep and resonant commitment, valuing of non-harming. Get really interested in non-harming and see if it ain't true <laughs> that life starts to work better for you. So this is generally what the Buddha would start with. If someone who maybe didn't have that many, um, hadn't had the good fortune to have 
had a very reflective life and so therefore, you know, was stingy in different ways and would sort of cause harm if they thought they could get something from it, could justify being mean, could justify cheating on their taxes or, you know, being, you know, a little aggressive here or a little passive aggressive there, um, gossiping, things like that, right? And then, you know, somebody who seems to know what they're talking about says, you know, you'd be a lot more happier. You'd feel pretty good in your life if you would just make an art, a really beautiful art of cultivating generosity and this commitment to non-harming. And so people would do that and they'd, now this is, you know, you don't have to believe this, but you, it'd be nice for us all to check this out. And then over time, oh, you know what? My life is working better. I feel like I belong in my life, belong in my communities more having cultivated this deep valuing of generosity and non-harming. And then the Buddha, at that point, might, like, so now our life is working better, he might sort of invite a pretty provocative reflection at this point, that even though my life is working pretty well, there's still some uneasiness in my heart. And, you know, this is not so easy, you know, if we have uh, good fortune and just have nice conditions. It's not like something we want to pay attention to that even when things are going well, right? Even when I'm being good and things are going relatively well in my life, we're not that interested in noticing that the heart on a subtle level is still discontent, still unsatisfied still uneasy. So then the Buddha might ask us to clarify that um, just the drawbacks of sense experience, just the limitations, you know, even when we're comfortable, we're not really satisfied. Initially, it's really nice when we get what we've wanted, but then after a while, it's not so nice anymore. I'm not saying it's bad, but it isn't satisfying in the way that it was in the initial moments when, oh, I have my new car or I have my new device or my new pair of pants or my new this or my new that. There's a kind of real gratification, but we tend not to notice that sort of it peaks and then it diminishes. And then there's really that joy, that initial joy of gratification it's pretty ephemeral. It's something that comes and goes. And what do we notice remains? That subtle hunger. That habit of identifying with desire. What in Buddhism we call craving. Tanha is the Pali word and it's uh, related to the word thirst, thirsting, hunger, right? It's that, I mean, it can really blow up and be very obvious, but it is there in the background when it's not obvious that kind of hungering for solid ground, hungering for complete satisfaction. And have we ever got a complete satisfaction so that we were we remain totally, completely satisfied? Are you there? <laughs> I'm not there. And so then that hunger, that thirsting remains. 
And then when people, when students of the Buddha got clear of that, so their life is working relatively well, they've been able, they've had the good fortune and the instructions and not perfect, but they have some basic well-being and that basic sense of belonging. And then they're with that safety, that well-being, they're if they're fortunate, you know, and they can take this teaching from the Buddha and get curious, they'll notice that even here there's some unsatisfactoriness. Dukkha. There's still dukkha. Right? Because as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there's the obvious dukkha of mental and physical pain, like I bumped my head the other night, that was dukkha dukkha. And then there's the dukkha of change, we paranami dukkha. So when things are really nice, beautiful fall evening, hanging out with friends, and we realize it's getting awfully cold as the sun goes down. Oh, it was really nice, but now it's not so nice, and pretty soon we're going to have to go in. Right? Okay. So, so even though it's nice now for the remaining minutes, that niceness is sort of undermined by knowing that I can't count on it. I can't make it last. Like I still feel pretty, you know, my body feels pretty vibrant. But being 62, you know, and noticing how much more stiffness there is in the morning than there used to be, you know, I can see like, yeah, that vibrant health that I feel a lot of the time, I know that I can't count on it. You know, I've seen enough older people, and I'm becoming one of those older people, right, that I know it's not something, it's not like a refuge, a dependable refuge, the vitality of my physical body. So then, it's only then that the Buddha would give these teachings on the Four Noble Truths which is really this deeper teaching on renunciation. We're letting go, and it's not even so much that you or I are letting go, but we're realizing the letting go of, of craving, which is the cause of dukkha. So this whole path that's mapped out, and by the way, you know, traditionally, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths is thought of as the Buddha's first Dharma talk, and there's really beautiful stories about how that came to be, that first Dharma talk. But scholars basically think of that as something that was constructed maybe a century after the time of the Buddha. I mean, clearly it includes the Buddhist teachings, but this map, this formulation, the Buddha mentioned it a few times in the suttas, um, but the whole story may be something that got constructed later. And, and during the time of the Buddha, you know, the, the way, the path that the Buddha talked most often about is, you know, developing samadhi, that stability of present moment awareness, that calm, clear, continuous present moment awareness, in order to see Dhamma. So Buddha, this wakefulness, waking up to Dhamma the way it is, and seeing the inconstant, changing, unsatisfactory nature. That's really the same thing as the Four Noble Truths, just a slightly different formulation. So, you know, we stabilize present moment awareness, and we have this insight, 
the first of the three insights. Oh, there is dukkha. There is this subtle unsatisfactoriness. Hey, you know what? It's relevant. This is interesting, this dukkha. It should be understood. Ah, I have understood it. This, These first three that we place under the first noble truth, there is dukkha, it should be understood, it has been understood. It's just a way of having a stable and honest relationship to that underlying uneasiness of the heart, even when things are going well. Clearly, there's more obvious experiences of dukkha when things aren't going well. But even when they're going well, there's that uneasiness of the heart, that dissatisfaction. So with that stability and with patience and with curiosity, we continue to observe. And then there arises a deeper insight. Oh, dukkha arises. So whatever that uneasiness is, now there's enough stability, enough concentration, whether in daily life or in a formal sit, where we really see that that uh, that tightness, that dissatisfaction, is related to this activity of tana, this thirsting, this craving. I really like I, one of the links, uh, one of the resources for this class that I sent out, the link for, is Ajahn Sumedho, this Buddhist monk, Western Buddhist monk, um, who wrote this booklet on the Four Noble Truths. I think that's what it's called, the Four Noble Truths. It's really quite good. I think it's just 50 pages, and he has a section on each of the Four Noble Truths and the Twelve Insights in the Four Noble Truths. I recommend it as a good overview and really not just an not just the beginning text of the of this practice but really something to work with throughout your your years of practice but uh, what the way Ajahn Sumedho describes the second noble truth is attachment to desire is craving right so this tanha that the buddha talks about is when because there's always going to be liking and not liking. That's just part of being a living creature. We like this, we don't like that. There's nothing, you know, it's nature. That's the nature to like and dislike. And then with conditions as they are, the mind that we have, we take that natural desire and we personalize it. We take it personally. We get identified with desire. And we construct stories like, I need to have that. I'll be happy if I get it. I'll be really unhappy if I don't get it. You know, this catastrophizing and this hope and fear. Hope that I'll get it, fear that I won't. Hope that I'll get rid of this, fear that I'll never get rid of this. Hope that I'll become somebody, fear that I won't. And these are the three kinds of craving. You know, the craving for some sense experience the craving to become somebody, the craving to be done with things, to want it to be done, to be out of here, to be finished. And just different ways of thirsting, having a problem with the way it is. And of course, all of these three, any flavor of craving, involves self-view. This habit, this deep chronic habit of 
organizing experience, organizing the meaning that the mind constructs around a sense of a separate self, a separate permanent self. And then that craving, you know, it's really um, that it, it sort of desire on steroids because when there is that view of self as a separate permanent entity and then ident that sense of self sees the desire as me and mine, right? it personalizes the desire, then the whole dukkha response of tightening, of squeezing, of feeling burdened is the natural result. Of course, in the way the Buddha understands things, in the way that you and I can understand things, right, is that dukkha, suffering, has to be a natural process. It isn't personal, actually, <laughs> and that's what we have to realize. We have to see that awakening is a natural, impersonal process, and this seeming experience of me suffering is also an impersonal and natural process. It's lawful. And what the stability of present moment awareness does is it reveals these two processes of suffering and the release as natural processes. And that's really important with the second noble truth because otherwise, you know, as we stabilize awareness and have a more honest and intimate understanding of dukkha, the subtle and not-so-subtle experiences of that squeeze, of that tension, and we continue to stabilize present moment awareness and we really see, oh, dukkha arises, and we really see that as that experience of craving, that identification with desire, the ego can get in, okay, I'm going to let go of this craving. And we can really veer into this shadow of like, trying to become somebody who doesn't crave. And it and it's like, you see this in Buddhist circles a lot, we see it in ourselves, hopefully, if we're being honest in our practice, where we're trying to become somebody who doesn't crave. And we act like we don't care, we act like we don't crave. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure, I'll have some ice cream, but I don't need it. Because I'm a Buddhist, and I don't, I'm not attached. But if, you know, you've got a lot, sure. If it makes you happy, I'll eat your ice cream. Right? We have we can have this sort of weird stuff around desire because we're afraid of craving, because we've identified with the Buddhist teachings and we've you know been a good intellectual student and we know we're not supposed to crave, so then we just go immediately to the idea of not craving. Instead of what the Buddha suggests is we bring this balanced, kind, stable, continuous present moment awareness. Patience is really so essential at this place of observing craving. Oh, there is craving. There is this cause, so to speak. So basically we're, we're correlating when there's a squeeze in my heart, when there's dukkha, there's craving. There's an arising of craving and then, with that arising of craving, there's the natural result of the squeeze, the tension, the weight, the entanglement. And when that craving ceases, then that weight goes away. And so instead of trying, 
like me getting in there and getting rid of the craving, we observe it, we know the craving is there, oh, there is craving. We're seeing that the craving is not helpful, it's optional, it doesn't need to be there, it's not helping anybody, right? But that's different than wanting to, it to, or trying to make it go away. We're just observing that the craving arises because of ignorance, right? It's the misunderstanding of desire and constructing a self, selfing around the desire, personalizing the desire that there's craving. So we just keep seeing the craving, seeing that it's extra, it's not helping, seeing craving cease. And all things cease, you don't have to make it go away. Craving will cease on its own. So this is our homework this week. Like we did last week, we'll have small groups at the end next week at 8.35 or so. And during those small groups, or those of you who are going to do your small groups at home with friends or your own reflection, but we're really trying to stabilize present moment awareness so we notice those ordinary moments. Oh, there is dukkha. Should be understood. I'm going to really be with this stabilize awareness so that we see, oh, there's craving here. There's a cause. This identification with desire. It isn't helpful. It isn't needed. And it ceases. So we want to see, like, well, how does that happen, that arc of, like, craving arises with ignorance, craving arises with patient observation of craving, wisdom arises, and so there's no longer any ignorance. So without the ignorance as a supporting cause, attachment, identification, craving ceases. And we want to see that whole arc. And now this may seem more complicated than it is, but as you're living your week, then just notice, you know, when there's that squeeze, you're feeling caught up in something, some desire to do something. So it could be, you know, just wanting to eat some dessert or wanting to spend time in the internet in a way that isn't helpful to anybody, waste time on the news or whatever it might be. And then if you can just remember, oh yeah, I'm doing this course, Buddhist studies course, perfect time to realize, oh yeah, the, the heart is tight, the heart is caught right, is entangled, and then we stabilize awareness, patience, and we see, like you can even prompt, is there any craving? Is there identification with desire? A sense of a me who needs to get something or get rid of something or become somebody, right? And that if only then I'll be happy, that kind of thing. So we're looking, like, is that there? Oh yeah, there it is. Okay, now don't just go right to trying to get rid of it, because that, that suppression, repression of desire, of craving, gets in the way of the deepening of understanding. So one thing you can drop in at that moment is, does craving cease on its own? Now it's not so easy to hang out with craving. It takes a lot of 
equanimity and confidence in the Buddhist teachings and your own practice, you know, like, okay, this is that burning of craving. But it's a, like something is on fire and we feel so compelled to put it out by gratifying the craving, you know, getting what we think we want. But what we really want to do is just hang out there in that experience and see what happens. Because there are so many times we've wanted something or wanted something to end or wanted to become somebody, these different aspects of desire and craving. But the that burning of craving ceased without us actually gratifying whatever the craving was about. But that doesn't mean we that mindful awareness was there to really see that experience of craving ceasing. And we really want to see that moment when craving is abandoned. And, that, and we'll talk about this in the weeks ahead. This third noble truth, oh, this is the cessation of dukkha. This is the mind, this is the heart free of dukkha. Oh, oh. Absent that burning, that uneasy burning is absent. Oh, so there is, this is a possibility, the heart free of grasping. Now we know this in degrees and we want to stay humble about whether we've realized the complete cessation of craving. Deep, uh, deep states of absorption, deep states of meditation, uh, meditative concentration, we get the taste because when, in, I mean, the real definition of a deep state of samadhi absorption is craving, is skillfully being suppressed. When the mind is really still, and it's, and it's in a sense using that quiet, that peace, that stillness as the meditation object, then that mind isn't craving, isn't needing the experience to be different than it is. So it really, the flavor, the aftertaste of a deep state of concentration is, oh, that felt really free to not be wanting, to not need things to be other than they are. And so much of our life, so much of our experience of our life is this uh, due to this animating force of craving. So we just have to have a lot of humility. We don't really know who I am, who I'd be without this animating force of craving. On the outside, we may not look that different, differently, but the internal experience... Sometimes if you have a really peaceful sit, there can be a reverberation that peace and stillness and calm can reverberate for a while afterward. And you'll, you'll get a sense of sort of moving through the world, your ordinary world of relationships and food and this and that. But there's still a, a pretty powerful flavor of contentedness. And you still might, you know, watch a TV show you know, or eat some food, or, you know, these reflexes of like, oh, there's a candy bar there, I'll have some. But 
it's a different experience because because of the reverberation of contentment and peace it's like there's no need there's no sense that that candy bar is needed so you don't have to reject sense experience that comes your way but there's not that sticky i'll be happier if i have this because the mind the quality of the mind is really uh, dominated by contentedness and peace and this is one of the advantages of you know doing our best to be a good student of calm and settling the heart calming the mind cultivating that continuity of mindful awareness which really as i mentioned in the guided sit brings in this uh gathering this unification and that's the beginning of that uh getting the taste of the cessation of craving and that really inspires us in this more wisdom part of the practice where we're becoming a good student of dukkha and a good student of craving which allows us to be a good student of the cessation of craving so i wanted to mention before we ended um i sent out earlier today in the email um this uh 12 insights that are, is in this uh this sutta where the buddha describes the four noble truths i mentioned one of the earlier weeks he starts by talking about the middle way be- between it's not about indulging in sense experience and it's not about asceticism rejecting sense experience or being afraid of sense experience right it's really the cultivation of these 12 insights and so um if you haven't printed that out you might want to print out that link i sent out earlier this afternoon and it's called the 12 insights in the four noble truths so each of the four noble truths there is dukkha there is a cause it arises it does cease and there's a way of practicing a way of relating that is liberating this is the noble eightfold path so there are three insights for each of the four noble truths and this we talked about this first one there is dukkha it should be understood it has been understood there is a cause dukkha arises right craving is the cause it should be abandoned it has been abandoned those are the three insights there is cessation this cessation should be realized it has been realized there is a path there is a way of relating this should be developed it has been developed there is a liberating way of relating oh thanks for reminding me yeah i had this problem before when i wear these shirts <laughs> thanks freda So anyway, you might want to get a hold of those 12 insights and that will just help you. So the homework for the small group next week then is to use those next three insights. There is an origin of suffering, craving should be abandoned, craving has been abandoned. So in just a simple way, we're getting really curious about craving. Craving for just an ordinary sense experience. craving to become somebody and craving for things to be done 
And as I mentioned, it really helps to um, emphasize the necessary patience here, right? And to make peace with the uneasiness in our hearts, to, to really get curious about it. And we can do it with those around us too, right? So we don't want to miss any opportunity. The, it's not just us, this heart-mind that has craving. The whole world is filled with it. Our cats have it. The dogs have it. Squirrels have it. The birds at the bird feeders have it. So we can see this kind of restlessness that is inherent in living beings. And for humans... We have this additional, you know, with a more complicated mind, we have this additional problem of identifying or personalizing this natural movement of desire, right? And that's kind of uh, makes it, allows it to become really neurotic. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. <clears throat> and I think this is from that text that I mentioned that I linked to uh, his booklet called The Four Noble Truths. He writes, Now you are looking at the pain or the anguish you feel, not from the perspective of it's mine, but as a reflection. There is this suffering, this dukkha. It's coming from the reflective position of Buddha seeing Dhamma, wakefulness seeing the way it is. And he goes on, the insight is simply the acknowledgement that there is this suffering without making it personal. That acknowledgement is, is an important insight. Just looking at mental anguish or physical pain and seeing it as dukkha rather than as personal misery, just seeing it as dukkha and not reacting to it in a habitual way. Because if the cause of dukkha the cause of our dissatisfaction is not seeing, not understanding dukkha, then we have to befriend it. And of course, in a way, that's the hardest thing in the world for us to befriend dukkha. Because all of our egoic habits, or to run from dukkha, or to get to something pleasant, to make the dukkha tolerable, or to want to be done with it, become somebody, you know, like even to become awakened, <laughs> you know, that we can use the Buddha's teachings and these practices as just another thing to crave. And we have some idea of ourselves as an awakened being, right? Beautiful Dharma being, and we want to become that person. And we might project onto our teachers or on to our spiritual ancestors that they somehow were, you know, whatever. And that may be true, but that projection, you know, it's part of this becoming an, oh, I want to be like that. But is that leading, is that in the direction of release? Or is that itself just the next moment of craving, wanting to become? This is from Sylvia Borstein. Uh, a chapter in her book, It's Easier Than You Think. Um, and she writes, The first noble truth declares unflinchingly, straight out, 
that pain is inherent in life itself, just because everything is changing. The second noble truth explains that suffering is what happens when we struggle with whatever our life experience is, rather than accepting and opening to our experience with wise and compassionate response. From this point of view, there's a big difference between pain and suffering. Pain is inevitable. Lives come with pain. Suffering is not inevitable. If suffering is what happens when we struggle with our experience because of our inability to accept it, then suffering is an optional extra. I misunderstood this when I started my practice and believed if I meditated hard enough, I would be finished with all the pain. That turned out to be a big mistake. I was disappointed when I discovered the error and embarrassed that I had been so naive. It's obvious that we are going to, it's obvious we are not going to finish with pain in this lifetime. The Buddha said, everything dear to us causes pain. And then this is a really, I think, uh, useful last part of this paragraph from Sylvia. Those of us who have chosen relational life have made the choice that pain is worth it. So those of us who are in relationship with other human beings and other creatures, right? Have you noticed that loss hurts? If we allow someone to become a dear one, our cat, our partner, our child, then we've given them permission to break our heart when they act in ways or when they leave us or when they die or when whatever, right? So this is just comes with the territory of being in relationship and caring. So even though like avoiding relationship is itself, you know, <laughs> neurotic, you know, it's like to be a, a mammal who has all these social instincts and then to decide, well, it's just too painful. So instead, what we're doing is we're using the ordinary unavoidable pain of relationship, the ordinary pain that comes with life to study, study dukkha, study its cause, study its release, study the way of living, the way of relating that leads to this release. And I, I was reminded, you know, when I was thinking about these first noble truths that we're studying now, this uh, interview with Cornell West, some of you know him, he's a well-known activist and philosopher and scholar and a professor at Princeton and Harvard and I think Union Seminary in New York and among other places. And uh, they were, there was some some uh, festival or honoring Martin Luther King in Boston a couple of years ago, I think 2018, and he was invited and they interviewed him or there was a, like a panel discussion and this is a translation of that that discussion and in that discussion he he mentioned that near the time when Martin Luther King was shot that uh, there evidently was a poll and 72% of Americans 
and 50% of black Americans disapproved of Martin Luther King at the time when he was shot. So, you know, he wasn't universally popular like now. He's in some ways a, a superstar in our culture. But it was more problematic back then because, you know, this is what happens when you speak truth to power. Um, and he was especially, you know, in those later years before he died, was really interested in the, um, not just uh, the work of anti-racism, but also poverty and being anti-war. And this is, you know, in the early years of the Vietnam War, where it wasn't so, so much a popular uprising against the war. And so there's serious pushback. And Cornell West, he goes on and he said, Despair is not a bad thing. He or she who has never despaired has never lived. Anyone who looks at the history of the world and doesn't have some element of despair, something's wrong with you. Despair means you have a sensitivity. But what Martin Luther King hated was when despair had the last word. He comes from a blues people where catastrophe is always confronting you every minute of your life, institutional catastrophe and personal catastrophe. But you take that catastrophe and you reshape it with your compassion and with your creativity into a style and a smile, like B.B. King and Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and Billie Holiday and Coltrane and Kendrick Lamar He's a blues man. He's just doing his hip-hop thing. You can see him wrestling with catastrophe, but not allowing despair to have the last word. But despair must be heard. It must be heard because that's what it is, because that's what it, because that's what it, I think there's a word missing, what it is to be human. All of us wrestle with catastrophe in that sense. But if, there, uh, but if all there is gets caught up in the pessimism, then you're paralyzed, then you're debilitated, then you end up being a spectator rather than a participant. And it goes on, it's really beautiful little um, yeah, discourse. And he really talks about how easy it is to get caught in cynicism around Dukkha, or sentimentalism, like, like just, oh, it's going to be fine. <laughs> he had some real critique, I guess, that Barack Obama around that time or earlier had been in Boston and had mentioned when it's sort of like as a politician, you know, on a national level, you have to sort of say something about America's greatness, you know, and I think he quoted Obama President Obama saying something like, America is a magical place. And, uh, you know, America is just America, you know, and we're capable of some really uh, beautiful, there's some beautiful parts to what America is. And obviously there's some really horrific parts. And who we become as a people, this country, it's really in play, right? And we could become a really not so wholesome place or possibly we can become a really just and wholesome place and nothing's guaranteed 
And that's really important. That's the same with us individually, right? Because we're natural processes and it, and it really depends on what we feed. And the dynamic that the Buddha, you know, this essential teaching when we're ready, this teaching on renunciation, it really has, it is the renunciation of craving. And that there's a natural process for that. It's the study of dukkha, the study of craving, until the mind begins to see the cessation of craving and realizing the heart that's free of craving. Because as much as that makes sense intellectually to us now, we really need that experience to build the confidence that there is a way to be engaged in the world without our life being animated by craving, by fear, by desire. doesn't mean we're going to be without fear and desire, but we'll be without the being confused by fear and desire. Oh yeah, it's just fear. It's just desire. We won't be um, relating to that with identification. Somebody sent a question in uh, last week. Um, just and by the way, you know, feel free if some uh, something is unclear, feel free to send an email. I think everyone has my email because I've been sending you uh, the emails every week. And if you just send your question in, and I'll try if I can to address it in class next week or the following week. And so um, a person sent in a question just, and I'll just read a bit of it. I'm uncovering more and more deluded and unwholesome thoughts and so much fear born from being in this world and heavily seeded by being raised by a mother with significant, less than nurturing practices, mental illness, that has made my adult life a struggle to find a self and a voice in here. I'm finding that my physical discomfort, fear, anxiety become so high that after a while I resort to black and white and very negative judgmental thinking. I'm often catching that thinking now, trying to hold disparate thoughts at the same time, but I notice how much it happens, how physically taxing it is to challenge these thoughts and beliefs. You once told me when you uh, experience fatigue, make sure you're also bringing present moment, bringing attention to the present moment, joys and gratitude. Yeah, and that's so important, like this uh, at the beginning of our sit tonight, you know, just emphasizing the simple joy of gathering, collecting, unifying in the present moment. And if it's not easy, then ask yourself, well, what can I do? What can I pay attention to? Or what can I do now so that I can gather in the present moment? I can settle with this whole presence, this presence with the whole of what's here and now. Because that's in a sense... Uh, an essential ingredient to see clearly. We have to feel that healing, that safety of being present. And when the pain is too much, then we're going to, uh, it won't feel safe to be using the 
unpleasantness together. When, when there's a lot of samadhi, we can actually open to a lot of unpleasantness. But in the beginning, we don't, we, we want either neutral or even better, some pleasant experience. I mean, the reason why in perfect worlds, you know, when you build a meditation hall, you want it to be a really pleasant place. You know, even better if it's in a really pleasant environment, like not in the middle of a busy city. You have a peaceful surrounding and an orderly space that just feels good to be in, good feng, feng shui, right? And there's a real art, like if you look at the different Buddhist cultures or any, just more generally, when you look at spiritual temples, whether it's an Islamic temple or mosque rather, or a synagogue or a beautiful Christian temple, church, you know, some of those places, they just have really, really pleasant to be in. And the mind settles. Or just being in your favorite place in nature. So, when we're, when what's sort of showing up is this sort of heavier, more intense stuff, the question is, what can I pay attention to? When I'm where when I'm doing what, when I'm paying attention to what, is my heart willing to gather in the present moment, willing to settle, willing to be alert and relaxed? Because it's really only then that we can study dukkha, its cause, its release, and the way. And we have to be really, um, we have to be real about where we are. And like uh, that point I made at the beginning of the talk tonight, where the Buddha would teach about the joy of cultivating generosity and abandoning stinginess, and the joy of cultivating sila, this commitment to non-harming, and how it really strengthens, in just a basic way, the sense of goodness, self-esteem, like I belong here in my life, and so we can use these teachings, cultivate, and, and it, of course, what generosity looks like is going to be different in each of our lives. It doesn't mean we start giving away money. It just means we don't believe the thought that I need to be stingy in order to be happy. We look for ways, like in, with my circumstances, with the conditions of my life, what does a generous heart look like? How can generosity be expressed in my life? Maybe we just touch somebody in an appropriate way. And that's a beautiful, simple act of generosity. Maybe we show up to the people we live with in, in a different way. So it really feels like we're showing up in a generous way in, in our con conversation with someone. We have to believe, we have to hold, hold out the possibility that it's always possible to be more generous. It's always appropriate to abandon the instinct, the tendency to be stingy. And it sets in motion a sense of well-being. Same with ethical conduct. Not some big burden, oh, i got to be good, I've got to stop cheating, I have to you know, stop taking advantage of people but really see it as a privilege, like, oh, 
there is this way to creating safety and a sense of well-being in my life just by honoring this um, value of non-harming. And because of that value of non-harming, willing to refrain. Like when I have an impulse to hit back, to be in, insulting or demeaning or gossiping, it's like, yeah, I could do that. But but I, I'm really going to sense, I really have this this sort of deepening sense that it's to my advantage, like my well-being depends on refraining from acting out in this way. A lot of the commitment to non-harming is learning that we can refrain these more base instincts to hit back, to gossip, to put down, to sort of cut corners, you know, and take a little bit more than we should. It's the somehow thinking that, well, it's a dog-eat-dog world, you know, I got to take care of myself. And, and if that means sort of not being fair to other people, not being respectful to other people or other creatures, so be it. But we live with that. And so we really want to uh, get good at these very ordinary ways to build the safety. That safety that it comes when we're feeling some inner well-being. Some people might call that self-esteem, emotional, psychological health and well-being. But like everything else, it arises naturally. It's a lawful, impersonal process. There are things that build that sense of well-being, and there are things that take away from that sense of well-being. And we can just check out whether the Buddha knew what he was talking about. Does the cultivation of generosity and non-harming do that for us? Does the cultivation of samadhi, the stability of present moment awareness, contribute to that? Well, the Buddha says absolutely, certainly aligns with my experience, probably aligns with a lot of your experience. And so we can share that in the small groups next week as well. But the more specific homework um, is around craving and how to be aware of craving without trying to make it go away. And when we see craving clearly, we see that it's extra, that it's not helping, that it should be uh, abandoned. But we're really waiting for that abandoning to just happen. Craving will cease. And get really curious, even with a sense of humor, like you feel a strong pull to do something. Then just like challenge yourself. Okay, will this cease on its own? And then just be patient with it, with a sense of humor, a sense of interest, curiosity. Will this strong craving cease on its own? And then that will be a great topic for conversation in the small groups next week. Send your questions in. Been really nice being with all of you tonight. So if that makes sense, just contact the center. Hope you're all doing well out there. And look forward to connecting next week. Have a good week, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.